Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Angela and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor of Health Correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thanks, Angela. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Author in the Room is made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name is Madge Kaplan, and I moderate these monthly discussions. They're designed to translate knowledge, what is published in an article in this case, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Olga Jonasson, one of the authors of the article, Watchful Waiting versus Repair of Inguinal Hernia in Minimally Symptomatic Men. That was published in the January 20th, 2006 issue of JAMA. Dr. Jonasson is a consultant to the American College of Surgeons and the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. Her surgery career began in the 1960s and has included a faculty position at the University of Illinois Hospital, Chief of Surgery at Cook County Hospital, and Chair and Professor of Surgery at Ohio State University. From 1993 to 2002, Dr. Jonasson held a senior position at the American College of Surgeons, leading educational and research research programs. It's a pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Jonathan. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Jonathan's research with an eye toward that all-important clinical improvement is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon. He's a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Welcome, Dr. Kylo. Thank you, Madge. So the purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author, sometimes it's authors, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Making the leap from what's on the page to changing how care is delivered can sometimes be daunting, so that's why we have on each Author in the Room call a clinical improvement expert such as Dr. Kylo, who's with us today. Now what he'll do in part is provide a sort of improvement roadmap and break things down into some manage manageable parts, some of which can be acted upon right away. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Jonathan will spend about 10 minutes summarizing her findings. Dr. Kylo will then take 10 minutes to touch upon overall improvement methods and suggest practical ways to spread the new knowledge and apply the research findings to medical practice. At the bottom of the hour, or very close to that, we'll turn to questions from callers for both Dr. Jonathan and Dr. Kylo and we look forward to some discussion. IHI and JAMA are studying the degree to which author in the room participants incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. We ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you, and we thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may carefully monitor and measure the value of these discussions. 
Um, we have a number of people on the phone with us today. Members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. So welcome all. We're going to get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Olga Jonathan, who will provide an overview of newly published findings on the benefits of watchful waiting for men whose inguinal hernias cause minimal symptoms. Dr. Jonathan, welcome again to Author in the Room, and we're eager to hear about your research. Thank you very much. In 1994, a new technique for inguinal hernia repair, laparoscopic repair, was first becoming popular. The American College of Surgeons believed that it was important to conduct a clinical trial of this new technique comparing it with the gold standard, an open, tension-free hernia repair using mesh. As we began to plan for this trial, several consultants, who were not surgeons, by the way, suggested that we include men with few or no symptoms from their hernias and test whether deferring an operation was safe and perhaps even better than having an operation. So we decided to do two trials, the first comparing the two operative techniques, open and laparoscopic repairs in men with or without symptoms, and the second trial comparing watchful waiting and an open operation in men with few, if any, symptoms. The first trial got underway in the VA system and the results showing that open repair was preferred for primary or new hernias, and that experience counts for success in laparoscopic repairs, was published in 2004. After several years of planning and then obtaining funding to perform the watchful waiting trial from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, AHRQ, the five-year trial involving 720 men randomly assigned to watchful waiting or operation was done in five community or academic institutions. It was completed at the end of 2004. It takes time to analyze the data and arrange for publication of the results, so the article appeared in JAMA on January 18, 2006. The results of this trial were very interesting and valuable. AHRQ had provided funding for the trial because they believed that the findings might change practices, and our findings do have this potential. We learned that it was not necessary to repair a minimally symptomatic hernia until symptoms developed, and that deferring an operation was safe for these men. And we learned that an operation, while very successful in most men, did have some risks. These risks were the usual complications of an operation, occurring in nearly a quarter of the men having the operation, and life-threatening complications due to the operation occurred in three patients. Persistence of pain in the groin related to the hernia repair was found in about 4% of these patients. In fact, after two years, the outcomes in the watchful waiting and surgery patients were quite similar. From a statistical analysis viewpoint, the frequency of pain interfering with activities was the same in both groups. 
and their physical functioning at two years was also the same. Both groups of patients reported less pain at the end of two years than when they first enrolled in the trial. Those were our two primary outcomes. As the trial went on, some of the patients in the watchful waiting group developed symptoms and requested an operation. By the end of the period of observation, which was four and a half years, a third had crossed over to receive an operation. When the operation was done, the outcomes for these crossover patients were just as good as the patients who received an operation right away. Looking back at the patients who crossed over from watchful waiting to an operation, there might be some clues that in the future will be analyzed to see if we can predict which patients will need an operation and go ahead and offer it to them right away. It's too early to say what this formula will be, but it appears promising. The great fear of physicians who see an asymptomatic man with a hernia is that the hernia will suddenly become impossible to reduce and develop strangulation. In the past, a strangulated hernia was associated with a very high mortality from an emergency operation. This fear has been the most common reason for recommending operation for all men with an inguinal hernia. It was preventive surgery. We found that the risk for this event was very small. Only two men of the 720 needed an emergency operation and neither of them actually had strangulation. Both had successful emergency operations. We, we also learned from a review of other articles on this topic that strangulation happens most often in the elderly and that most of these men never realized they even had a hernia before the accident occurred. We feel very comfortable with our recommendation then that minimally symptomatic inguinal hernias in men need not be fixed until symptoms worsen to the point where usual daily activities are compromised. The second point in our recommendations is that when symptoms develop, especially if the symptoms worsen suddenly, they should promptly visit a surgeon and request a request a repair. And the third point is if the hernia suddenly becomes incarcerated, that is unable to be reduced, painful, and signs of a bowel obstruction develop, vomiting and abdominal cramps, an operation should be done immediately. In 2006, even this emergency operation is safe and mortality rates, including those in the elderly, are very low. That concludes my review of the article. Thank you, Dr. Jonathan. Now we want to turn to what the research and uh, Dr. Jonathan's recommendations and conclusions here suggest about changes in clinical practice that cl clinicians and those in a position perhaps to improve clinical practice might consider. So Dr. Kylo, we turn to you now for this journey of kind of processing this information and where to take it. Thanks, Madge, and thanks, Dr. Jonason, and greetings to everybody on the call. For over a year now, as Madge mentioned, JAMA and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement have been hosting this series of monthly conference calls called Author in the Room. And as Madge stated, the goal is to put you, clinicians, managers, 
policymakers and other healthcare professionals directly in touch with authors to help transfer their newly published knowledge uh, into action, into practice. And this is indeed a challenge, as we know from the literature, for providers to take these lessons from uh, newly published studies and to make effective use of them in our everyday practices and in our healthcare systems. Uh, we all understand the need to do so. Uh, sometimes that new, the new knowledge that is published is clearly knowledge that is actionable in terms of system design that would influence the design of our health systems or of our practices. Uh, because the symptoms are, uh, because the study refers to something that is very commonly dealt with, say, as an example, hypertension. And sometimes the knowledge is just purely new knowledge, uh, which may be a common condition, but for which it may be difficult to find pure system fixes. And at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, we use a very powerful tool for improvement called the Model for Improvement to bring about rapid improvement. The model is disarmingly simple. In essence, it's a form of learning that's very much like the scientific method, only it's being applied to management and improving processes, in this case, your practice or your system of care. We have mentioned the model for improvement on past calls. I'm not going to go into it uh, in detail now. If you're not familiar with the model for improvement and want to know more, I'd refer you to the articles that were referenced in the confirmation email that you received for this call from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, in particular the article by Dr. Don Berwick uh, titled Developing and Testing Changes in the Delivery of Care in the Annals of Internal Medicine, published in 1998. So most studies are, in fact, knowledge building. They raise our awareness about the topic, provide new knowledge, and this new knowledge may or may not be actionable in our day-to-day -day work uh, on a routine basis. The condition may be rare enough that we either see it rarely or we have, uh, rarely have a chance to treat it. For cases, uh, uh, for topics that involve common conditions, it's easy to talk about the development of protocols and guidelines and things along those, uh, those lines. For most primary care practices, I suspect that they don't deal enough with uh, hernias on a regular basis to have a set of guidelines, but if you are involved in a surgical practice, that may well be the case. And certainly if you're at a hospital that does a number of hernia uh, surgeries, it may be the case uh, for you as well. Uh, sometimes new knowledge drives changes in policy, sometimes new awareness, and sometimes it's highly pertinent to our daily work as we talked about. Obviously, the more pertinent it is to the daily work, the more we can use it for these improvement uh, and, and the system fixes that we, we mentioned. The purpose of this call is to talk about how we take this knowledge, new knowledge about hernia surgery, and, take, and put it into action. Uh, in my mind, as a primary care physician, uh, for most primary care practices, this is an issue of awareness building. And it's an issue of how we take this new knowledge and disseminate it to our providers so that they know uh, uh, that the, the new knowledge exists and that they can rapidly get it into practice. Uh, and so I think the challenge for us is to think about how we go about disseminating new knowledge uh, into practice. Now, some examples of that are, first and foremost, education. Uh, and as we know, there are many forms of education. We might think of Grand Rounds and other CME type of educational events. And while those are effective and sometimes necessary, their effectiveness often wanes with time. So they either need to be reiterated or reinforced by other system changes to achieve the results that we want, which is the continual use of the new knowledge in our uh, daily care. So education uh, is uh, 
uh, is a one system change that you might make to uh, diffuse this new knowledge into practice. Um, just communication is another. For example, when this uh, article came out, I summarized it in an email and sent it out to all of our physicians. And then our physicians chatted very briefly about how this would change our practice. We also disseminated this uh, information to some of our local physicians with whom we were, to whom we refer our hernias on a regular basis and chatted with them briefly about how this may change our referrals to them uh, and what they thought about the article. What I'd like to hear from you as we uh, turn the call back over to the participants for a question and answer is how such an article had changed your practice and what system changes and what dissemination of this knowledge, uh, what mechanisms for the dissemination of this knowledge you might have put into place to assure that uh, uh, individuals that you work with have taken this and put it into practice. In addition, I think there are a number of other avenues that we uh, might take in the conversation. Uh, as an example, uh, with the increasing pressure we all have to measure our own performance, uh, in particular for surgeons in this case, it would be important to measure performance around common things that we deal with, and hernia surgery is something that most general surgeons deal a lot with. And so we might want to talk about a measurement set which takes this new knowledge into consideration. Um, we could also talk about shared decision-making and how this knowledge is actually put into place and how we talk to our patients about the need for hernia surgery. So those are some options for the call. And uh, what I'd like to do now is turn it back off over to Madge and Dr. Jonason uh, and open it up for question and answer. Thanks, Dr. Kylo. Uh, Dr. Jonathan, uh, before we do uh, go to the phones uh, and see what's on the minds of people who've called in for today's call, uh, I wanted to just ask you whether or not uh, maybe in the course of doing the research, uh, finalizing it, and even since publication in January, uh, whether you have gotten any sense, uh, Chuck alluded to maybe some changes, uh, whether you've already gotten any impressions of, of changes that uh, are taking place right now in terms of how physicians are dealing with this information? Well, I'm not sure, Madge, if there have been actual changes made as yet. I think that, um, however, there are groups that are planning for change. For instance, uh, uh, large systems of health care. Uh, I received a, uh, a message from someone who deals with uh, several hundred thousand patients in the prison system. And as we know, uh, hernias are very common in the in prisoners, and so uh, they are looking to this with considerable interest to see if some sort of an algorithm might be might be developed. And there have been a number of other um, um, similar such uh, calls and emails. I would like to take a little issue with something Dr. Kylo said, though. And that was that um, primary care physicians might not see this condition very often. Uh, inguinal hernias occur in uh, quite a few men, 15 men in 1,000, uh, which is a high incidence. And most of them are seen by primary care physicians before they're referred to a surgeon. And so I think uh, rather than uh, focus on surgeons as the target of this information, I think primary care physicians are very, very involved in the care of patients with hernias. Okay. All right. Uh, point uh, well taken and understood. 
Um, all right, a quick reminder that IHI and JAMA are studying the impact of author in the room on call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys that will be emailed to you, and we do appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of the type of discussion we're having today. We are now going to turn to questions from our callers. Uh, the research presented today offers some important new information about the wisdom of watchful waiting. Uh, particularly if there are uh, minimal symptoms. Uh, so uh, ask away uh, about the research, uh, about the ways of spreading knowledge uh, and frontline improvers and how they can be the first line of uh, processing some of this. Please state your name, where you're from, your discipline if you don't mind, and if your question is directed to someone in particular. So Angela, let's go ahead and find out uh, what kinds of questions there are. Thank you. If you have a question, please press zero one on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may adjust your question. So again, that zero one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero, then the two keys. And our first question comes from Joseph Belchu. Your line is now open. Thank you. My question is, if you have a patient who is symptomatic but has no obvious do you diagnose that patient as having a hernia? So symptomatic but no hernia. So symptomatic, uh, okay. Um, I'm sure the clinicians here can make some sense of that. Uh, Dr. Jonathan, you want to start with that? Well, yes. Uh, this is often seen, for instance, in uh, athletes or those who do heavy lifting. And oftentimes, uh, symptoms in the groin can be related to muscular or ligament strain. Um, it's important to see and be able to touch the hernia in order to make that diagnosis. It could possibly be made with ultrasound of the groin, but Really, we rely on our uh, hands and on our eyes to make this diagnosis. So I would not recommend operating on someone in whom a hernia cannot be seen. Thanks very much for your answer. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Kylo, any, any comments there? No, I think that was a, it was a great point because uh, there are a lot of, uh, of conditions which cause pain in the general inguinal area. And uh, as Dr. Jonathan said, these are most frequently dealt with by primary care physicians. And as she also said, the, the way that most patients with their hernia get to a surgeon is through their primary care physician. And uh, so I think these are really great issues, as she alluded to, to think about, again, how you communicate uh, and train your primary care docs to recognize the different conditions, to diagnose hernias, and then to talk with your patients about what the appropriate course is. Okay. I would like to add, though, that Go it's ahead. very important to examine the groin carefully uh, before uh, uh, n not referring the patient. There might be something else there. Okay. Sure. Great. Thank you very much. All right, Angela, anyone else? Yes. Our next question comes from Robert Carr with In Silico Bioscience Incorporated. Your line is now open. Yes. Uh, my question is, uh, Will waiting or uh, or waiting and keeping up a strenuous exercise regime increase the size of the hernia? Interesting question. Okay, Dr. Jonathan. Uh, yes, it might, but it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, 
increasing the a larger hernia is not necessarily a more dangerous hernia by any means. That's an interesting uh, question also whether watchful waiting needs to be, I guess, accompanied by anything else uh, that a patient might do uh, to also, um, you know, during that period of time. I, that, that's what that question actually reminds me of. Is, yes. the, is oh. there anything? Uh, we don't uh, put any, we did not put any restrictions on these men. And as I mentioned when I was uh, giving my summary, uh, many of the men who present with even a problem with their hernia have never known before the problem suddenly developed, never even knew that they had a hernia. And so uh, putting restrictions on does not seem to be necessary, nor do lifestyle modifications need to be made. The men should just go on and leave their normal lives, and when symptoms develop, if and when symptoms develop, they should go back to their doctor and seek a referral to a surgeon. Okay, thank you. Joseph, I, excuse me, does that answer your question? Uh, well, yes, except uh, does, uh, does would uh, strenuous exercise, if that was part of your normal routine, would, would that tend to increase the, uh, the hernia or, or should one try and reduce their exercise? Well, uh, what we recommend is that anything that causes symptoms, predominantly discomfort or pain, should be avoided. Okay. So if the strenuous exercise causes some symptoms, then it's probably not a good idea to do that strenuous exercise, and perhaps if the symptoms persist, to actually see your doctor again. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that question. Uh, Angela? Yes, we have another question. It comes from Hina Radio with Northeast Surgical Group. Your line is now open. Hi. My question uh, is, in your analysis, did you come across a group of patients in whom you would not wait uh, on surgery? A group of patients where you would not wait? Right. Is that okay. Any group? Okay. Uh, pa patients who are not qualified for watchful waiting. Is that your question? That's correct. Yes. Uh, we think there might be some clues in their baseline characteristics when they were enrolled. Um, and we're pursuing that statistical analysis. I can't give you any information on that now because the analysis has not been completed. But we think that there may be some patients who uh, uh, we could predict from the very beginning that watchful waiting would not be a satisfactory strategy. What about patients who might be on anticoagulation, et cetera, and in whom an emergency surgery would be probably less safe than a planned elective procedure where you have had chance to reverse their anticoagulation and do it more uh, in a structured manner? Well, of course, every emergency operation carries more risk than an elective operation, so it's always preferable to do uh, the operations on any patient uh, in a planned elective basis when everything is optimal. Uh, and so I think in the judgment of the physician, if uh, it would be uh, advisable to optimize the patient uh, electively and then perform a hernia repair, that would certainly be satisfactory. After all, uh, the operation is highly successful. Thank you. Is my question. Thank you very much. Okay, someone else, Angela. 
looks like that's all the questions we have at this time. Okay. Well, while we wait for people to uh, retool and uh, step up to the plate with some additional questions, uh, Dr. Jonathan, um, I thought maybe we could pick up on this theme about uh, what kinds of the risks of, uh, of waiting uh, in that there seems to still be a lot of concern out there uh, about um, emergency surgery and whether or not that's in any way associated with um, mortality or higher mortality. Could you sort of expand on that, please? Yes. Well, we know that every emergency, uh, every procedure, if done as an emergency, carries a higher risk than if it's done electively. That, that we've known for many years. There's a separate classification that the American Society of Anesthesiologists has even added to their normal classification for emergency procedures so that we know uh, when, when the procedures are, um, are emergency and can risk adjust on that basis. Uh, we did query the um, National Surgical Improvement, uh, Quality Improvement Program, NISQIP, in the VA system for data on their uh, hernia accidents, the acute incarcerations and strangulation episodes that they encountered and looked at the mortality rate there. Dr. William Henderson provided us with these data and it showed that the uh, uh, mortality rate for an emergency operation was higher than uh, in an elective situation. However, uh, the men were quite elderly as well, and the risks of mortality were still very low. They were approximately 2%, which is, of course, much higher than we would expect from an, from an elective procedure, but nonetheless quite, uh, quite an acceptably low rate. So we believe that in modern-day critical care management and with the enormous skill of our anesthesiologists that even the elderly, who are most likely to incarcerate, uh, the elderly uh, can be safely carried through a surgical procedure. And the risk of having an accident, it turns out, is very, very low. It's uh, uh, 1.8 per thousand patient years, which means that uh, uh, in if you had a thousand patients with an inguinal hernia and you followed them for a year, fewer than two of them would have a problem. Now, of the two men that we had who had this hernia accident, one re did require an emergency operation. The other uh, who came in with these problems had a successful hernia reduction in the emergency room and then was operated on electively and uh, neither patient had uh, any problems with that. So we were quite satisfied that uh, waiting for most patients was quite safe. Okay. Well, that's clear enough. Uh, any any follow-up to that, uh, Dr. Kylo? No. What I, w uh, what I would like to hear from uh, some of the participants, because most of them, uh, we do have the participant list, most of them come from large organizations. So I'd like to hear what they're doing with this new knowledge and how they're disseminating it in their organizations, how they're using it for improvement. Uh, and then I'd also like to just chat with Dr. Jonathan a bit about uh, common measures that are being developed uh, around uh, hernia management uh, for the general surgeon and how this might impact uh, performance measurement around hernia surgery. Is there a developing set of measures or has there been one in place for a while? Uh, 
I'll tell you, Dr. Carlo, of all the surgical procedures, I think, that are done by the general surgeon, the one that has the most opinion circulating around it is hernia repair. It seems that every single general surgeon knows a trick that he or she believes makes their repair superior to that of anybody else's. So there isn't really any, um, any standardization. There, uh, we have come to agree, I think, uh, although there is still considerable disagreement, that the gold standard is probably the repair developed back in the 70s by a surgeon in California named Irving Lichtenstein. And the Lichtenstein repair seems to have the best outcomes of any of the repairs. So uh, in terms of uh, performance measures, I don't think there are any unique uh, hernia except the recurrence rates, and that requires maintaining careful outcomes databases. And of course, most surgeons have not had the opportunity to do that. The National Surgery Quality Improvement Program developed in the VA has done that for, for some years now, and that's being spread to other um, large healthcare institutions, and NISQIP is now being uh, more broadly disseminated. That has a number of very important outcomes uh, measurements in there, wound infections, length of stay, and so forth. But still, recurrence rate has been the, uh, the measure that most surgeons use to determine success or failure. Okay, very good. Angela, anyone at the phones? Yes, we do have a couple questions. And our next question comes from Hina Radio with Northeast Surgical Group. Your line is now open. Right. My question was how uh, it's hard to change people's uh, best, I always do this way mentality. What has worked best in larger organizations or small group practices to encourage people to give it a try to another opinion, another option, another way of doing things? Great question, and, and, and welcome back. I recognize your voice. Uh, that is a terrific question because uh, given uh, what Dr. Jonathan said about uh, everyone's uh, being proud of, of their particular way of, of doing the surgery, uh, the question is whether there's going to be some kind of resistance to this type of finding. Everybody's trying to do best by the patient. Yes, of course. I think that they are doing the best. Okay. Dr. Jonathan, you want to take that? Sure. Uh, the um uh, the operation, I, as I mentioned, is very successful, and when using tension-free repairs, which are the repairs that use mesh instead of pulling the tissues together with sutures, uh, using a variety of different free repairs, the repairs have been reduced to very small numbers, less than 5%. It uh, used to be 10 to 15% uh, of the hernias that were fixed would recur. Now it's less than 5%. Uh, in uh, a general surgical practice. Uh, and uh, because of that, uh, operation is regarded as being very safe and effective. However, there are problems with it. Uh, recurrence is problem number one, but probably the more important problem is that of lingering pain. And as many as 40 to 
50% of men in some series in Scandinavia, for instance, who have been carefully followed have had chronic pain and discomfort in their groin as a result of their hernia operation. We did not find that high a frequency. It was approximately 4% in our series, but still it can be very, very troublesome to men and inhibit, <clears throat> inhibit the quality of their life considerably. And so um, avoiding an operation until it's necessary might really be the best for the patient. However, if the patients are having symptoms that inhibit their lifestyle in any way, uh, they probably should have it repaired because it's still a good procedure to have done. Dr. Kylo, you, maybe you might also uh, take a crack at this whole issue about sort of changing uh, you know, long-held notions about even what's best for the, for the patient. Uh, that, that seemed to be a big part of this question as well. Sure. It, it was just a wonderful question, and I very much appreciate Dr. Jonasson's uh, response to it. And the challenge, the challenge with this particular topic is that uh, so much of it depends on uh, the patient's input and how much the patient would assess uh, their own impact on their quality of life and, and uh, functional status of the hernia. And, uh, and it's why talking about this specific system changes is a challenge because the changes that we need to institute after this study is really a change in the way the primary care physician primarily and the general surgeon talks to the patient about a hernia or diagnosis of a hernia and how they go about the process of shared decision making with them. And uh, I would say the, the general field of shared decision-making tools lags behind. It's a technically challenging thing where you might imagine if diagnosing somebody with uh, a new hernia, uh, putting them in front of a computer uh, with a shared decision-making piece of software that walks them through their symptoms and how much this is impacting their life and helps them to make a, a decision about how they would like to proceed. Well, we don't have, by and large, uh, those software packages readily available, and most practices are not set up to use them right now if they were available. So really what we have to do is change the way we have conversations with patients and the shared decision-making that comes out of a conversation with patients. And first and foremost, that takes raising the awareness of our primary care physicians and our general surgeons as to the new research. As I said in our practice, I circulated this, the, the abstract of the study uh, and the link to the study by email, and then we had a very brief conversation of all of our physicians. Now, all of our physicians is five physicians in our medical practice. That is easier to do than if you were in a very large medical group. But first and foremost, it is that awareness raising. And then it is uh, discussing with your physicians uh, how they're going to go about talking to their patients about hernias. And in this case, where again, it's difficult to develop a protocol per se around such a clinical topic, it is the training that you in practice that you do with your clinicians about having conversations with patients and how you go about having those conversations. And in essence, again, in this instance, it is like it is the shared decision-making process. I would actually um, use the example of PSA testing. Uh, as everybody knows, the, the whole area of uh, testing for prostate-specific antigen is wrought with uh, challenges and controversy about whether we should be using it for a screening test and whether we shouldn't. And a lot of it is based on what the person has read uh, and how they feel about testing for prostate cancer. 
because the the literature is still out as to whether or not we should be using it routinely uh, for screening. And so what you learn from that is to develop your own conversation with patients uh, and coaching them about the whole issue of PSA testing and helping to guide them to a decision about whether it's right for them. Similarly, uh, what I learned from this study is it needs to change the conversation that I have with patients. Now, I can script that and I can give it to my docs. They may or may not use it, but it may help them to understand changes that they may want to have in the conversation around hernia management as well. So really the impact of this is on that shared decision-making process of laying out uh, their options based on this wonderful data and helping them feel comfortable with the decision that they made. As Dr. Jonasson so well laid out, uh, you know, minor symptoms might have a significant impact on somebody's life if they're an aggressive tennis player. Say they're a 65-year-old, they play tennis four or five times a week and they're pretty aggressive. You might take relatively minor symptoms in that patient and decide to, to move that patient on to surgery. Whereas if there's somebody who doesn't do that sort of activity and they have minor symptoms but that doesn't impact their quality of their life, you might, you might opt for the, for the watchful waiting. So the real change is in that conversation, that shared decision-making we have with patients, both at the primary care level and at the general surgeon's level. And I think that's where, that's where the improvement needs to be made in this case. Terrific. Okay. Well, well put. Uh, yes. Angela, anyone else at the phones? Yeah. Uh, oh, please. I'm sorry. Dr. Jonathan, go ahead. Yeah? Yes. Um, just to add to what Dr. Carlos said, uh, I think that um, most of you uh, uh, have finished medical school long since, uh, much earlier, uh, uh, after I did. I'm, I'm kind of antique in this business. <laughs> but uh, when I was in medical school, there was absolutely no question that if there were gallstones in the gallbladder, the gallbladder had to be removed whether or not there were symptoms. Uh, and we were also taught that every inguinal hernia was an indication for an operation. Well, we've learned uh, many years ago that gallstones can be asymptomatic for uh, a lifetime and the gallbladder will never need to be removed. Uh, now I think we're learning that um, uh, a hernia does not need necessarily to be fixed unless it is causing symptoms. We don't take out gallbladders now until symptoms develop. And we don't take, a, a, hopefully we will not fix hernias until symptoms develop there. It's preventive surgery that we're talking about, and I don't believe that preventive surgery uh, has in most instances proven to be worthwhile. All right, thank you very much. Uh, Angela, is there someone uh, else at the phone? Yes, our next question comes from Robert Carr with In Silico Biosciences Incorporated. Your line is now open. Yes, I have uh, a couple of questions. One, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Jonathan uh, mentioned that uh, the Lichtenstein method was the uh, gold standard, and I wondered if uh, she had any opinion about these, some of these, quote, newer methods, in particular the proline hernia system and the, uh, the Perflex plug and patch. And secondly, I wondered if she had any recommendations about uh, the type of anesthesia to be used, especially in light of recent information about uh, uh, the incidence of cognitive impairment, uh, especially in the elderly from general anesthesia. 
Okay, thank you for those uh, questions. Maybe we'll try and address, address them a little bit quickly uh, and, and uh, see if we can also continue to uh, keep a focus on, on uh, what to do with the knowledge. Go ahead, Dr. Jonathan. I can't comment on the systems, the plug and patch and so forth, because I have not seen good comparative uh, randomized clinical trials that would prove uh, that they're effective for any length of time. Uh, they're still awfully new as well. Uh, and the second question dealt with anesthesia. Um, the uh, uh, hernia operations, the open hernia operations, such as the Lichtenstein, can readily be done with local anesthesia. And it probably has some advantages in terms of uh, blocking the afferent pathways of pain and reducing pain postoperatively better than general anesthesia does. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, hope that help, helps Robert. Uh, Angela, anyone else? That's all the questions we have at this time. Okay. Dr. Jonathan, in your summary, uh, you made mention of the fact that both groups in the study, both groups of patients you said reported less pain at the end of two years than when they first enrolled in the trial. Uh, could you say a little bit more about that? Uh, that particular sentence kind of jumped out at me. Well, we know that the patients who have had an operation, uh, most of them had less, had had removal of the pain associated with their hernia. Uh, but uh, the other patients, the watchful waiting patients, were probably showing a placebo effect or the well-known effect of being enrolled in a clinical trial, the benefits of being enrolled in any clinical trial for any patient. Okay, thank you very much. Um, what about women in relationship to this issue? Uh, women should not be treated with watchful waiting. Uh, women really uh, have different types of hernias, different symptoms from their hernias, and it's very difficult to differentiate between a femoral hernia, which is really risky business, and an inguinal hernia in women. So we would not recommend that any woman be treated expectantly. Okay. And can you uh, say a little bit about um, what, whether the study, the study follow-up was short. So should we be wondering about what will eventually happen uh, because of that? Well, I think we know some information about that because we uh, have a, uh, an, a continuing crossover from watchful waiting to operation as symptoms develop. By the end of the study, as I mentioned, a third of the patients had crossed over. And the rate of crossover did not seem to be diminishing. So perhaps uh, most of them will, who knows, perhaps most of them will require an operation uh, after years and years have passed. But to find out what happens, uh, we do have, after the trial finished, a voluntary registry uh, that's housed at the American College of Surgeons and patients will be queried. Uh, in fact, the patients in the original study done in the VA comparing the open and the laparoscopic operation and the patients in this study comparing watchful waiting with operation, uh, totally, uh, totaling uh, approximately 3,000 patients will be queried once a year and almost all the patients have agreed to be entered into this registry. 
Okay. All right. Well, that's something that uh, additional information that we can watch for. Dr. Kyler, go ahead. Well, I think that's I think that's wonderful. Uh, the the voluntary follow up, and uh, look forward to hearing about that follow up. And it would be expected that a lot of these people would cross over and move to surgery. But I still think that the the knowledge is very valuable. If you can delay surgery for five or ten years uh, with minimal symptoms, then uh, that is, a, I think, a very valuable thing to do. Again, I would note that on the call we have a lot of uh, good organizations. We have uh, some insurance companies and we have uh, uh, many good clinical organizations from around the country and some from overseas, and I would love to hear from them as to what they're doing with this knowledge and how, they're, how they are putting into place. That would be very instructive for others on the call. So uh, if you're out there, uh, please uh, go ahead and hit those, those buttons so that you can uh, tell us what you're doing with this new, new, uh, new information. That's terrific. Okay. Uh, Angela, any, anybody uh, heeding Dr. Kylo's appeal? There's none at this time. Okay. Well, maybe somebody will still. We still have a few minutes. Uh, Dr. Kylo, I know that you said you're, you have a group practice of five. I don't know if that's five including you or five plus you. Um, but I'm curious, uh, you know, given it's, it's a sort of a small test of change, uh, you transmitted some new information. Uh, were there any interesting questions that came up in your physician group or anything that uh, made people pause? Um, uh, or did you sense a, a great willingness uh, to, to move on in some different way? Well, you know, I think that uh, Dr. Jonason's study has uh, has really helped us significantly in this regard. As she alluded to previously, there was a relatively knee-jerk uh, response to an inguinal hernia. You know, uh, you uh, find an inguinal hernia on exam, or patients, uh, a male patient's complaining of pain in the groin. You find a hernia, and you pretty much send them to the surgeon, and you therefore assume that the surgeon's going to have the conversation and make the right decisions with them. And I think that this, as she alluded to before at the very opening, uh, uh, I did not mean to imply that this was not a primary care issue because I think it very much is. This makes it even more of a primary care issue uh, because it really puts the ball firmly into our court as to the conversation that we have with patients uh, and the shared decision-making that we can have with them. Uh, and the knowledge is this information that we can share with them. So um, our group does that, I think, on a regular basis. We, it, it's just a part of our culture to engage people in that sort of shared decision-making and conversations, as I said before, around things like PSA testing. And so this just improves our knowledge base and gives us more options in terms of what conversations we have with the patient. And I think this makes us much more comfortable with watchful waiting as an option for, uh, I would say, probably a majority of men uh, with an inguinal hernia, because uh, I, I, I believe that m uh, many of them will opt with this knowledge to wait for some not insignificant period of time, be it months or uh, for, some, for many of them probably years. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Well, we are sort of heading towards the top of the hour, so we'll start to wrap up uh, the questions and discussions. Uh, there will be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website 
for anyone who would like to continue a conversation. Um, to find the link to this web-based discussion, you go to IHI.org, look under Community, then Discussion Groups, and then Author in the Room. Now, in order to view or participate in the discussion group, you must register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. So while it's not clear that we're going to get any more uh, it, uh, people to come to the phone in response even to Dr. Kylo's uh, curiosity about what some of uh, those of you who registered today might be doing with this information, we do hope you'll take advantage perhaps of the web-based discussion. This is, uh, we're coming basically to the end of this 12th in a series of hour-long discussions. Amazing, Dr. Kylo. <laughs> we call this author in the room. I want to thank Dr. Jonathan and Dr. Chuck Kylo uh, for their knowledge and guidance today. And I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to make some brief closing remarks. Dr. Jonathan, we'll start with you. Well, I would like to thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to do this. Uh, I think Dr. Kylo is right on that, uh, in, uh, that education of the practicing physicians is what is necessary here, probably uh, mainly based on reducing their apprehension about watchful waiting. Uh, it is safe, and uh, especially in a developed country such as ours where medical care is accessible, I don't think we need to be fearful of the fact that patients uh, have hernias and walk around with them. After all, all of us who are surgeons have seen patients who've had their hernias for 20, 30, 40 years and it hasn't bothered them uh, before they come. And we've also found that uh, even after delay, and admittedly it was short in this study, but even after the delay, the patients did not suffer any penalty from waiting. Their complication rate, their recurrence rate, their rate of pain, nothing was, uh, was uh, increased by waiting. So we think it's safe. All right. I uh, can't say it better uh, myself. Uh, Dr. Kylo, go ahead. Well, that was a great summary by Dr. Jonasson, and uh, I very much appreciate it. I'm sure the participants do as well. Uh, I do think that this represents a really wonderful opportunity to talk with your docs, your primary care docs and your surgeons about the process of shared decision-making and how you use this type of knowledge in that process of having conversations about uh, uh, about such clinical topics with patients and how you bring the data to bear on that conversation, much as you would in the conversation about prostate-specific antigen testing, for example. Uh, the change is how do you go about doing that with your primary care docs and with your specialists, uh, even in a highly electronic environment such as ours where we have an electronic medical record and have a lot of protocols built into it. This, is a, this would be a very hard uh, um, a clinical subject to put into some sort of electronic format so that every time we made a diagnosis of an inguinal hernia, we went there and interacted with the computer system in some way, much as we do, as an example, with uh, cardiovascular disease. We have a set of protocols on cardiovascular disease. Uh, because this is so driven by the patient's experience of the condition and their personal preferences, what it really calls out for is that shared decision-making process. And I think at this point, based on the technology we have, what it really means is training your docs to engage with patients about the clinical conditions and, again, learning how to effectively pull out their preferences and use that in the decision-making process. I think that's really wonderful stuff to do. It's fun to do, and that's what I would encourage folks to do with this, this information. 
All right, well, terrific research and a lot of wisdom today that we hope all of you can use. Uh, this is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on March 15th. We'll focus on the article Systemic Analgesia, excuse me, analgesia and local anesthesia for procedural pain in neonates. And look for details soon on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As a reminder, IHI and JAMA are studying whether author in the room participants can make use of clinical improvements suggested by our experts. Today's discussion uh, is uh, something that we hope uh, you'll uh, take, uh, some, uh, take away uh, some ideas with how you can begin to educate those you work with, uh, other primary care uh, physicians, surgeons, and we look forward to hearing uh, how that goes. And we are asking all participants to complete two short surveys that will be emailed to you immediately after the call and three months from now. And we thank all who've joined us today for taking the time to complete the surveys. Again, thanks to our guests, Dr. Jonathan, Dr. Kylo, and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day.